Welcome to the Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast. In each episode, we talk with leading campus professionals, thought leaders, engineers, and innovators addressing the unique challenges and opportunities facing higher ed and corporate campuses. Our decisions range from energy conservation and efficiency to planning and finance, from building science to social science, from energy systems to food systems. We hope you're ready to learn, share, and ultimately accelerate your institution toward solutions. I'm your host, Dave Carlsgott. I'm a principal at Fovia, an energy, carbon, and business planning firm. I'll just say way too often, communities of color are approached as if, oh, we have to educate you, or you're so vulnerable, or maybe not even approached at all. And we need to be approaching communities of color as though they have a lot to teach, because we do. All right, today's episode, we have a guest host, um, Nick McCreary from Indiana State University. Um, Nick this was great. You reached out to me. We were looking for somebody to fill our internship for the summer, and you reached out suggesting you didn't want the internship since you already actually work at a university, which is great, uh, but that you were interested in help, helping out with this podcast. So tell us a little bit about who you are and why you wanted to get involved with this and, and a little bit about the show we're about to hear. Yeah. Well, first, thanks for giving me this opportunity. It's been a mostly a huge learning um, a learning experience for me, but the the main reason, well, I saw the I saw the post because I'm always scanning like job boards for students, and and I actually sent the internship out to students to see if they wanted to apply. But then I thought to myself, it's like, well, I listen to a ton of podcasts, um, and I I would love to learn how to do it. And and one of the questions that came to me was every time I'm like educating students about sustainability, a lot of students understand the the environmental aspect of it, like, yeah, recycling, solar panels, you know, um, stuff like that, waste diversion. But when we get into the social color of like the triple bottom line, students just kind of have a blank stare and like, how does social justice or how does, why, why are those two mixed? And so I, I've always wanted to just be able to hand a student something and be like, here, this is how. And so that's kind of what the idea of this podcast was, is to be able to hand students or I guess in this case, send them a link to be like, hey, you know what, how about you listen to this and then we can have a conversation after. And and so that's that's was the idea, I guess, when I reached out to you is to some sort of educational piece to um, allow students on our campus, but hopefully everywhere and maybe even more than students learn about the social pillar of sustainability. So we, we did an interview with Mary Anais Heglar, um, and it, it was amazing. I thought uh, she's way more educated in the topic than I am. Um, and I learned a lot just from talking to her. Yeah, it was fun to be a fly on the wall this time as opposed to being the one asking the questions. But uh, yeah, I, we, I first heard Mary at the California Higher Education Sustainability Conference earlier this summer. She had a f- full house and endless questions. It was great to hear her her speak. But um, yeah, I, I really appreciated this episode too. It was, you know, we talk a lot about the technical aspects of sustainability. That's a lot of the work that we're doing. But the more I've done this work, the more I realize that if we don't connect the dots to the social aspects of sustainability, it just doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Uh, and I think she really articulates that well in this interview. So yeah, anything else we need to know? Yeah, um, I mean, I guess it's just maybe probably something a little bit different than than what you've heard in previous episodes from this, from this podcast. Um, and I, I hope people can use it as kind of like I'm going to and where I hand it out to people who, who don't 
quite grasp or didn't even know that uh, like social sustainability was a thing. Um, and I hope people listen to it, learn a lot and can and maybe start thinking about the world in a different way. I know for me, the social pillar of sustainability is like the most um, driving force of why we should make a difference um, because I mean uh, like climate change is inequitable and um, those who are causing it are not the ones who are going to necessarily feel the largest like negative forces of climate change and to me that feels wrong and and uh, even more of a reason why we should try and combat it great well let's let's hear what Mary has to say well Mary it's nice to meet you nice to meet you too before we begin our conversation on those topics why don't you take a minute introduce yourself and your work I am the Director of Publications at the Natural Resources Defense Council, um, where I've worked for about five years. In that position, so I started as the Policy Publications Editor, moved up to Senior Policy Publications Editor, and now um, Director of Publications. And that meant that I was editing and midwifing, for lack of a better term, a ton of really wonky publications about climate. I kind of came here like deliberately because I wanted to learn those things. I came here because I wanted to be part of telling what um, I believe then and really know now was the most important story of our time. In reading those those reports, they're they're really alarming. They're really terrifying. I started writing within the past like a little more than a year now because. I started to feel like, especially with the 2016 election, that the way that we were talking about climate change was inadequate. And I don't mean we as in NRDC, I mean we as in everyone, really, and definitely the broader environmental movement. We weren't telling the whole story. We were leaving people out um, and definitely leaving marginalized people out. Um, And we were neutering the urgency. And so... I just sort of, I kept listening for other people to say these things. Like I knew there were things that needed to be said and I kept listening for them and kept listening for them and I never heard them. And so finally I was like, well, I'll just say it. Yeah. So it, it sounds like you went from, you, you learned a lot by editing these policies and then realized that no one was really talking about what you see as a, a larger issue. Yeah. Well, it's, it, uh, policy reports are, by their very nature, uh, wonky. They're supposed to be yeah. wonky reports for wonky people, right? Um, <laughs> but so I, I was not expecting to see regular people's stories in a policy report. It would be very out of place. Um, you, like you talk about people in the aggregate in those senses. You don't really bring home the emotionality of it. You don't really talk about like how it feels. It's really more focused on solutions than it is the analysis, like the deep analysis of the problem that would go back to, you know, the 1500s and 1600s, right? So I don't expect that in a policy report. So I started listening to, you know, different podcasts. I started reading like more mainstream publications that were talking about climate. Even there, I still didn't see it. I still didn't see people talking about the immediacy of it. I still saw people talking about it in terms of our children and grandchildren. I still was seeing, um, I was still hearing people talk about it as statistics and degrees of Celsius and gigatons, et cetera. It was mm-hmm. very, even in those contexts, it wasn't being brought home. And so I decided, well, I'm going to start writing. And I honestly thought it would just live on my little blog and nobody would ever read it. And now I'm here. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, yeah, your writing is, is really powerful. I want to get into the idea of like sustainability, right? It's a word that gets thrown around a, a ton lately, and sometimes it's in greenwashing, sometimes it's used correctly. Um, and it means different things to different people. One thing that I always hear uh, when I, when, or a lot of times I hear when people talk about sustainability is the idea of a triple bottom line, or that uh, people, planet, and profit should be equally considered when making decisions. Could you talk a bit about what does the word sustainability mean to you, and, and do you ever think about the triple bottom line? I, I think of sustainability as being about harmony and being able to last. And honestly, a lot of it just really comes down to common sense, right? Like okay. using something, using up a finite resource is just not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, that makes that is common sense. <laughs> yeah, so I not too long ago wrote an essay on you know what what do I think should be the motivator for the climate movement. Um, should, like a lot of people say, it should be fear. Some people say hope. Some people say anger. I myself have said anger, and I settle on love because I feel like love is more sustainable. That love has room for all of those other emotions. So when I think of sustainability, um, honestly, the first word that comes to my mind is love. Okay. Yeah, that's 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 a new definition I never heard of. I really like it. Um, it's something that everyone can rally around, right? Yeah, I think so. Right? You want to live? Right. <laughs> yeah. You you've said that the the burdens of climate change fall heaviest on the people already structurally situated to be able to at least carry that burden. What do you mean by that? Um, well, to be clear, I'm not the only one saying that. A lot of people right, right. say that, right? So the right, people right. on the front lines of climate change are generally the people who are in low-lying communities. They are people who have been, through structural racism, deliberately kept out of uh, or red-zoned into neighborhoods that are more vulnerable. Um, they are people who have historically contributed the least to climate change, like in the global south. And they are people of color. They are the people with the least means to protect themselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, could you expand a little bit about where you talked about they've contributed the, the least to climate change? Well, if you look at the carbon footprint, of the historical carbon footprint of a place like India, for example, where... People are dying and scorching, like literally scorching heat waves. Um, their carbon footprint is tiny. I know that we always talk about India, China, and the United States as the top three emitters. But first of all, India's uh, ca carbon footprint today with more than a billion people is like 3.6 or something like that percent of the whole high of carbon emissions, whereas the United States and China are both like above 20%. So they don't even deserve to be mentioned in the same breath as China and the United States today. But if you look at their historical footprint, right, like what was India doing during the, the Industrial Revolution? They were not having an industrial revolution. They were being colonized um, right. and brutalized by, by England. So they did nothing to create this mess that we're in. And the same goes for Africa and Latin America um, and all of these countries in the global South. They were systematically kept from participating in that revolution. And also now, like if you look at the map of where the climate change impacts are going to be the worst, it's like a colonizer's playground. Right. 
Yeah. Could you talk a little bit on the the responsibility of the industrialized countries or those countries that have industrialized way earlier than others on helping uh, developing and and mid-level developing countries reach a level of comfort that we have without making the same mistakes that we did in terms of climate? I mean, I think you made a mess you need to clean up. And we industrialized revolutions absolutely make a mess. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But in your piece uh, that you wrote, Climate Change Ain't the First Existential Threat, um, you introduced the idea. I hate that of, title, by the way. Oh, really? <laughs> well, it caught my eye. It was the first of your pieces that I read. Um, so you introduced the idea of existential exceptionalism. I'd never heard of this. And, and you said that's because this is your term. Um, you call you called a losing game. What, what is existential exceptionalism and, and how does it relate? to the, the social side of sustainability. Yeah, I totally made that term up. Um, so I, I think of existential exceptionalism as this idea that um, climate change is the first time that, that our existence has been threatened. And it's a losing game because it sort of situates climate change as this ahistorical thing. And I, I'll give you that it is absolutely unprecedented, right? Like we've never seen a threat to all of humankind before, but to different populations have absolutely had their lives on the line, right? And it's a losing game for a few reasons. The first of which is that by removing all precedents for existential threats, um, that means that we're not able to learn from history. And what I really wanted to say in that piece is that the climate movement could stand to learn a lot from the civil rights movement. And we best get about the business of, of doing so, right? Like I was reading um, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail and the similarities and the parallels to the climate movement were just overwhelming. Um, and I couldn't believe that everyone else was not seeing what I was seeing. Um, and that was the motivation for writing that piece. The other reason why it's a losing game is because it is alienating to people of color who come from these traditions and these histories of having their lives on the line and having to fight for their lives and acts like that just didn't happen. It's the first time that white men as a group have been threatened like this. Right. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Moving that idea into the white men being the first time that they've ever been threatened, I think we can both agree that there are people all over the world passionately fighting against climate changes and the forces that are causing it. Um, but you, like you've written in, in climate marches that I've been to and that you've said you've been to, climate activist groups are mainly white. Why do you think this is the case and is that related? Um, yeah, I think climate groups are largely white because they come from a conservationist history and the conservation movement of the 1800s and 1900s was deeply, deeply, deeply racist. The, their whole thing was conserving land, not for people, but from people, right? So their their idea was we want to keep Native Americans off of, you know, national parks. And that's why we have so many national parks. So the, for the express reason of stealing it from Native Americans, there's also um, a really ugly history regarding overpopulation, which unfortunately is <laughs> I, I don't think it ever went away. <laughs> it right. definitely didn't go away. Um, but now it's getting a resurgence and people are taking action into their 
own hands, as we were seeing in El Paso, is deeply distressing and terrifying. And I think it's also been really white because we framed the threat as being to future generations, right? We framed it as being farther and farther away, and therefore people don't pick up the urgency. And when you have communities of color who are fighting threats to their lives day in and day out, like not in the future, but right, right now, if you tell me that the threat is like generations away, it's like, all right, great. Well, you have time to deal with that. I do not um, because police are shooting us today and I might not make it to have children. So I'm, I don't have time to deal with that right now. And it doesn't really matter if I die by climate change or if I die because of a police state, I'm just as dead. Right. That's interesting. Two, two different ideas that I heard there is one about how specifically white people um, and, and people of privilege. This, would you say this is like the first time that they have ever faced something like this? And, that, and, and since it's so far off in the future, it feels like something we don't need to address now to that, that class of people? Um, you know, I, that's my best guess. Okay. And how, how can that group of people and uh, the climate movement learn from marginalized groups and, and people of color? I mean, there's so many things, right? Like read the things that we've written, read letter from a, from a Birmingham jail, like understand that this is not separate from uh, all of those other fights for justice. Understand that this like bottom line is about justice and not anything else. So I think they can read a lot of our texts. I mean, there've been so many books written about the civil rights movement. There've been so many books written about um, Black power movement, about all of these other, I mean, I, I speak to those because those are, are from my tradition, but there have been plenty of others from uh, Latino communities, from the indigenous rights struggle that like has never ended. So there's just so much wisdom that can be learned, but I think the biggest lesson to learn is probably how they approach these communities to get them to sign on. Generally, I, or I'll just say way too often, Communities of color are approached as if, oh, we have to educate you or you're so vulnerable or maybe not even approached at all. And we need to be approaching communities of color as though they have a lot to teach because we do have a lot to teach. Yeah, so more like approaching these communities, like we, we've seen that, um, that y'all have been fighting these kind of battles forever. What, how... How have you done it and, and how can we apply this to climate change and, and work together because it is a together goal or a problem? Also, uh, seeing that climate change is not separate, that it shares the same roots as all mm-hmm. of those other problems, that it is fundamentally about justice and not just about science for science sake. Um, and therefore, it's showing up for them as much as you want them to show up for you. Right. So it's not like we're only going to fight when white people's lives are threatened. You need to fight for communities of color, too. Right. Yeah. Well, that's that makes sense. So can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by the 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 same structure is in place that marginalizes communities as also is changing our climate? Well, I think um, when we talk about climate change, we don't do a deeper analysis. We're just like, oh, there's carbon in the air and that's why the climate's changing, right? (laughs) Um, And we don't really go back to like, okay, where does climate, where does the carbon come from? And it comes from the fossil fuel industry. All right, well, where does the fossil fuel industry come from? It came from the industrial revolution. All right, where did that come from? 
slavery. And therefore, we're not drawing <laughs> the right, we're never going to solve a problem that we can't look at the whole of. Why do you why do you think it's so difficult for people to to make that connection? Is it because it's, it's such a large abstract idea, or is it more about white people are afraid to admit admit that we've caused all this or we've caused so much injustice? You know, I haven't quite figured that out. I think it's probably a little column A, a little column B, and <clears throat> all the other letters too. Um, I think that people are not used to thinking about the climate period. Um, like, I don't think people think about, or we take the planet for, for granted. Um, I think as a society, we've come to see ourselves as separate from the planet um, and not part of it. And therefore, like, protecting the planet is seen as this altruistic thing without realizing, like, where else are you going to live? Right? right. So that's, we're just not used to thinking about the climate at all let alone the real roots of how we wound up here. Yeah. Do you think uh, framing climate change and climate action as more of a justice, like a climate justice um, approach would help convince more people to start taking action immediately? Yes, absolutely. I don't think people understand science. I know I don't. Um, I think people understand justice inherently, right? Like you take a three-year-old, they can tell you when something's not fair. So it's, it's a really simple concept that's ingrained in us as human beings that when something is unjust, you need to do something about it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So reframing the, the conversation around like ethics and justice, rather than saying we need to stop emitting this amount of CO2 to prevent warming of this level by this year, you think people are, it's, it's easier to explain and convince through emotions. Through emotions and also just like reminding them that they live here, right? Like it's, it's really practical to want to protect your home, right? Like if your house was on fire, would you start talking about like your literal house? Would you start talking about all the different ways that fire works or would you put out a fire? Yeah, that's that's a great point. And our our house is literally on fire right now. So right, um, the Arctic. I, I think it's still on fire. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's get into talking about um, what you wrote about. And I work in the environment, and I don't care if you recycle. Um, people. <laughs> <laughs> Another title. I hate it. Well, I I love that title because I that happens with me all the time. Uh, people walking up to me and saying like, look, I recycled, like I deserve to be like green ambassador of the year. And what, why, why don't you care if people recycle? And, and what does this tell us about the real culprit behind this changing planet? Injustice, I thought. So I do care if people recycle <laughs> because I think that is like a bit of a show of how much you care sure. um, and how engaged you are. Right. I think that people think of recycling as a stopping point and not as a starting point. And then we have a problem. Um, and I don't care if you recycle in the sense that that is not the requirement. That is not the prerequisite for getting involved in climate change or getting involved in climate justice. Mm -hmm. um, I don't need you to be super, super green. I like I don't care if you flew to the climate march, right? Like if you decided that you were going to get active on climate change on a plane, I don't care. 
I, there's enough room in this movement for you. In fact, there's a gaping U-sized hole in this movement. Um, and so I don't, you don't need to purify yourself before you can participate. Yeah, so how would you, how would you tell someone to jump right in? What, what would you tell them to do? I, it depends on that person's circumstances, right? Like not everybody can do everything. Um, I would say to like, it is absolutely a good exercise for you to shrink your carbon footprint. You should do that. That's a good thing. Um, but at the same time, recognize that this is a problem bigger than yourself. And we need to get comfortable with complexity and get comfortable with collectivity. Um, a great way to start is calling your senators all the time. Call your representative all the time. Uh, voting, making sure that you are putting climate on the agenda in any time that you can. Um, donating to different climate action organizations, uh, showing up at protests, marches, and if that's not your thing, like, I get it, I'm afraid of crowds too. You can also participate by organizing. You can donate some of your time to some of these organizations. You can also talk about it. That is honestly, I think, one of the biggest climate actions that you can can take is talking to people in your life because most people are deeply concerned about climate change but they don't talk about it and they therefore feel more and more isolated and we're all kind of suffering in silence um, and not only is that not healthy it is debilitating and that sort of means that the conversation ends and our representatives have this foolish idea that it's not important to people even though it very much is right yeah so Let's imagine um, we're we're back home or in a group with our with our friends, and we're all thinking about climate change. But like we talked about, using stats and figures and science just isn't a, a great way unless you're in a group of geologists to approach the topic. How would you start that conversation in a group of, say, your friends that you've never talked to about climate change? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't have that group of friends there. Oh, <laughs> um, I think. It relates to literally anything. And I right. have a hard time not talking about it, right? Like, right. are you eating food? <laughs> are you eating air, right? Like, I, I hear this a lot of, what would you say to someone who's not engaged and isn't really aware of this? Like, do they have a window? I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Like, how, how do you not know? Um, it's all over all of the Internet. So, I mean, talk about the news. Talk about the fact that California has been on fire. <laughs> talk right, about the right. fact, like, what's just the way you would talk to your friends about anything that you're afraid of. Right. And, but that's, that sounds like it, it, it would require someone to, to gain a little bit more knowledge themselves about the topic, to be able to relate it to multiple different interests. Would I mean, you... I, don't, I don't think you need to be an expert on climate change. Mm -hmm. I most certainly am not. I was an English major, and I mean, I know a lot about climate change now from editing all of these reports and reading all of these articles, but like, mm -hmm. you know how gravity affects your life, but mm -hmm. I couldn't explain it to you. You don't <laughs> need to, right? Like, right. just like I was saying about your house being on fire. I don't know what causes fire. Like, aren't the molecules get together? They do a little dance. Like, who cares? The fact is that California is on fire and you're scared, right? Like, you, I don't need you to explain all the particulars of how it works. Right. What about this scenario? You are, you're a person who um, receives all your information from a, a source that is 
blatantly lying about climate change, but says that climate change isn't real. Um, how, how do you approach someone like that? You know, I haven't figured that out. I also think that we should wonder how, why we care so much about the people who deny climate change, right? Because if they, I think I heard Rihanna gone right say this once, that if they were poor black people, nobody would care what they thought, right? I don't, I don't really believe that anybody doesn't believe is real. I think that that's a bad faith argument. And that, again, is why existential exceptionalism is really problematic, right? Because these same bad faith arguments were, are just kind of recycled from other movements. Like the, you'll notice the same people who say blue lives matter are the same people who say climate change isn't real. And how do we how do we approach those people, or do we need to? I think we need to take power away from them. And and do that through elections or movements, activism. All of it. All right. Of it. Like we we never convinced Strom Thurmond that segregation wasn't real. We got him out of office, right. or that segregation wasn't good. Right. Got it. So. This, this is going to be one of the last questions. Um, so hopefully people who are listening to this podcast have some sort of emotion about what we talked about, whether it's anger or fear, inspiration or disappointment. Could you guide them through the steps you outlined in your piece, feel something, learn something, do something, something that a, a checklist for people who, who don't necessarily consider themselves climate activists to, to start doing today when they, when they press pause on this? The first thing I think to do is to process your feelings like they are real, they are valid. And I think when you're living in a world where everybody else kind of seems like they're doing just fine, that um, you can start to feel like you're crazy. You're not. So one of the first things that you need to do is to seek out community. And that can be in the form of, like I was saying, talk, talk to your friends about it. You'll probably find out that they're feeling kind of the same way. So breaking out of the isolation, you can do that through social media. You can do that through reading books. You can do that by reading articles and just sort of building up your emotional resilience and understand that some days are going to be worse and better than others, right? Like sometimes I do fall right back into depression. Sometimes I am rife with anger. Sometimes I'm just straight up confused. Sometimes I'm numb, right? And those things are normal. You need to allow yourself to to feel those things and then as soon as you're able pick yourself back up and get involved and that can be um shrinking your carbon footprint right? like that is an, an not an exercise in futility by any measure um you should absolutely do it and i'm not going to prescribe how one should do that right like right i you can be a vegan who still flies you can be someone who never flies but still eats meat like whatever <laughs> works for your life you can also like eliminate your carbon footprint and i don't know i actually don't know how one would do that but if you figure it out let me know uh, <laughs> also uh oh i think it's one educating yourself so it was feel something learn something do something so Again, reading reading books, um, and that doesn't need to be limited to nonfiction. You, there are plenty of mm -hmm. fiction books out there in the climate fiction world. There's also plenty of books about, um, one of the books I recommend to people is called If Bill Street Could Talk by James Baldwin, and it's about being loving and empathetic uh, in the face of impending tragedy and holding close to the people who are important to you and expanding your idea of family. So that's also in there. Another book I recommend is um, 
the parable of the sower by Octavia Butler, or really anything by Octavia Butler. Um, she wrote, believe it or not, she wrote that book in the 1990s, I think it was, and it reads like a newsreel today. Um, wow. And it's it's a really beautiful book. You won't be able to put it down. Um, I know I wasn't. And then by doing something, I think that goes back to getting involved in collective action. That can be with your wallet. That can be with your, your body. That can be with just even something so small as, as voting um, and definitely vote. Um, yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for having this conversation with me. Um, if people who listen to this are really interested in you and in your work, and I, I don't see why they wouldn't be after this, uh, where, where can they find what you write or, or you're pretty active on social media? Yeah, I'm pretty active on Twitter. On Twitter, right. Okay, I have an Instagram page. I don't really update it that much. Um, and that one is Mary.Hegler on Instagram. On Twitter, it's Mary Hegler. And um, Medium is Mary Hegler, too. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode. I wanted to give a special thanks to Nick McCreary for all his work in making this episode happen. Part of the original concept for this podcast back in 2016 was to enlist the curiosity of sustainability professionals like Nick. I'm glad he reached out and grateful for all the research and preparation he put into making this episode happen. Also, a huge thanks to our guest, Mary Hegler. You can learn more about Mary through the show notes for episode 23 on our website at campusenergypodcast.com. Finally, thanks to Kaya Finlay, who edited and produced this episode. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, we are at Energy Podcast. This show is a free service, but if you'd like to support the show, please take a moment to write a short review on iTunes or just tell a friend about the show. As always, thanks for listening.